Our text this morning is Ephesians 4, the verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. After the sermon, let's sing together hymn 40, stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, unity is a sweet thing. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about a sports club, a political party, or a family, unity is what makes the world, world go round. And that's also true for the church. When we talk about church unity, and we think of what Scripture says about it, there are two passages that always come to mind. One is very short, sweet, and simple. We sang it together, Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. That psalm makes crystal clear why unity is so beautiful. It, it ends by saying, for there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. And what Psalm 133 is saying is only when the church has unity does God put his blessing there. Another passage that typically comes to mind is a more complex passage. It's also very rich and deep, and that's the text that we have before us this morning, where the Apostle Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then it says and why we need to keep the unity, because there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Again, the message is very clear, now we'll put it negatively, if there is no unity in the church, then the blessings of God are not there. Where there's no unity, the spirit is grieved, and the spirit is grieved is not an environment in which he can work. Lack of unity in any aspect of life is terribly destructive. Take a couple of examples. There are a number of people here who are builders. You build a house, and you don't use proper unity, putting all the walls and the, and the roof and the, the cross pieces, nail them, screw them, put them all tightly together. A house could come crashing down on the family that lives there, injuring them or even killing them. You take a huge corporation. When there's no unity between upper and middle management and the workers, that, that company will do poorly. It might go bankrupt. Same with a family. If there's not real unity between a husband and wife, and between parents and children, you have what's called a dysfunctional family. And the scars of such a family may last forever. Another example would be the army or police work. 
In the last couple of decades in our country, we've had some very serious serial killers, murderers, because of lack of unity in police work. It went unchecked. Whether we're talking Paul Bernardo in southern Ontario or Picton out in B.C., it's well known, for instance, in the case in Ontario, lack of unity and cooperation between the Toronto and Niagara police allowed a murderer to continue his rape and his murder of young women. You wonder how, how some people sleep at night. When there's not unity in any aspect of life, it is destructive. And it's also true for the Church of Jesus Christ. If, if there's no unity, people fall away. People don't know what it is to live in the joy of salvation. Children and young people grow up in an environment that's broken. And they don't know the sweet joy of Jesus as their Lord and Savior and commit their life to Him. So what the Apostle Paul is talking about in our text, which is a passage about unity of the Holy Spirit, unity of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, is telling us how to be a church how to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, each and every one of us. We summarize our text in this way. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And we see that we are, we are to be spiritually one because we are spiritually one. The theme of our sermon comes from the opening sentence of our text. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul reminds us here that he is a, a prisoner, and he has told us that before. He's actually been arrested because he preaches the gospel. He's in a prison, and he's in chains. Now, I'm not 100% sure why Paul mentions that again in this verse, but I, I think what Paul is trying to say is, it doesn't matter who you are, you are to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I'm a prisoner. I am in chains. I still have a calling. I still have to be a witness, even to my own prison guards. So if that's true for me, that's true for you. Whether you are a man or a woman, boy or girl, whatever your status, whatever, whatever your nationality, you are called to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now at this point, there, there's a, you know the expression, something gets lost in the translation. Well, that's certainly true for our text. I'd love to pick your brain and say, how do you understand verse 1? What do you think Paul is saying? I suspect that because of the English translation, a lot of people would say, what Paul is saying is, since I am a prisoner, I am urging you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's not what Paul says. Literal translation of the Greek says, I exhort therefore you... I, as a prisoner of the Lord, to walk worthily of the calling you have received. So what Paul is saying is, because of what I have written so far, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. Paul's not saying, as a prisoner, I'm urging you. He says, because of what I have said so far in this letter, I'm saying, you've got to live a life worthy of your calling. So you've got to backtrack not just chapter 3, but chapter 2 and chapter 1. Briefly, what Paul has said is God elected you before the world was created. He elected you to be saved in Jesus Christ. 
He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. In fact, God gave Jesus Christ all power and dominion so that he can gather, defend, and preserve his church, that nothing separates us from the love of our God. And in that church, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you once were lost, now have been found by the grace of God. In fact, while we're on the topic of church, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you grew up in this church or came later, doesn't matter your nationality or your color, doesn't matter what you've done in your life, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are in the church, equal to everybody else, with all the privileges, all the responsibilities, and all the blessings of the church of Jesus Christ. Now Paul says, therefore, knowing all this, this tremendous salvation in Jesus Christ, therefore I urge you, I exhort you, to live a life worthy of, of your calling. And that calling, Paul has explained in verse 18 of chapter 1 when he says, I pray that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You know what your calling is, brothers and sisters? Really, when you come right down to it, your calling is to know who Jesus is and to know what he's done for you. Your calling is to embrace that beautiful gospel and experience that the blood of Jesus washes away your sins and the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again. He seals you. He lifts you up and carries you in the assurance that you're a child of God. That's your calling. Paul says, I pray that you may know it and that you experience it. And then... Then out of that, you can live a life worthy of your calling and the hope that you have. In fact, every commentator will explain to you that here in chapter 3, verse 1, you have the turning point in the letter to the Ephesians. The first three chapters are about what God has done for you. The last three chapters is how you, in gratitude, can give your life back to God. Indeed, we continue to look at chapter 3, especially when you come to verse 17 and following, right through chapter 4, 5, and 6. Paul gives us all kinds of practical examples of holy living. Don't lie. Don't steal. No filthy talk from your wife. Don't, from your mouth. Don't cheat on your wife. And don't abuse your children. We say, wow. After verse 17 then we see how we are to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. In fact, if you ask a typical Christian, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? They'll say, you know, that that means that I don't lie, I don't hurt people, I work on my marriage and my family, and so on and so forth. And you know, it's not a bad answer. It's not a good answer. Being a Christian is not in the first place that I don't lie and steal and cheat on my wife. That's what Paul is trying to make clear in verses 1 through 16. You know, to be a Christian, to be a child of God, you need an environment in which to grow. You need something that, that will help you to be holy and live a life worthy of your calling what we need and what we need to work on together so that nobody falls through the cracks is church unity. 
A church that is united. A church in which people love each other and, and work together. That's a church in which we grow. Like a flower grows in beautiful soil, so your child, your teenager, and you will flourish in a congregation where there's true unity and where the Word of God is in the center of our lives. That's the point that Paul is making in our text. He says in verses 2 and 3, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You notice that last line there, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Paul doesn't say, you create unity. He says, keep that unity. Maintain it. It's already there. We'll talk more about that in, in our second point. It's very, very important to understand this right away. Church unity, you don't make it. You foster it. You keep what's there. You maintain it. You make it grow. You create an environment in which unity goes from one degree of glory to the next. Where does unity come from? What is our unity, brothers and sisters? Is it not that the Father so loved us, He gave His Son to be our Lord and Savior? That when Jesus hung on that cross, He was thinking about you. Don't kid yourself. When He hung there on Golgotha, He knew you. 2,000 years later, he knew your face, he knew your name, he knew your sins. And he says, but I will die for you. And then Jesus Christ gave his spirit to come and dwell in our hearts and cause us to be born again. To fill us with the blessing of Christ. But then to take each individual believer and like a, a living stone, put it into that one structure, that one building, that one house that is the church. All of us like living stones built into one building, one temple where the Spirit dwells and together we live to God's praise and God's glory. That's our unity. Our unity is the blood, the love of the Father, the blood of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit that is in us. It is the full blessing of salvation. And now Paul says, you make every effort to keep that unity. And do it through the bond of peace. Being humble, gentle, patient, and bearing one another in love. Now, if you look at that whole sentence, it sounds pretty complicated. But if you put it together and see the, the one line that Paul is, is making there, the one point that he's making, it becomes very clear. Especially when he talks about the bond of peace. Maintain, keep the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That, that's a beautiful biblical word, Peace. Peace means wholeness. A church that has peace is a church that is whole, that is healthy, that each person is drawn in in a spirit of unity, peace, and love. I said at the beginning of the sermon, it's unity that makes the world go round. You know, the expression is really, it is love that makes the world go round. Well, unity and love, ultimately for a Christian, comes down to the same thing. You maybe know what it says in 1 John 4. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If you know the love of God, do you? 
my brother and my sister, do you know the love of God? Do you say God loves me? Because if you do, then you will also say, I love my brothers and my sisters. That love of God just keeps going on right through your life, extending into everything you think, say, and do to the people around you that you love them. And that love is not cheap. It's not superficial. It's not simply saying, for your friends are my friends, and my friends are your friends. And the more we get together, the happier we'll be. That's talk. And talk is cheap. Real love, real unity, is action in thought, word, and deed. The Apostle Paul also made that very clear in 1 Corinthians 13 in his discourse in love. He says, love, what's love? Love does not mean saying, I love you. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude or self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The Apostle Paul is basically saying the same thing in our text when he says, seek humility. Humility means counting others as better than yourself. Maybe you say, I'm a humble guy. I'm such a humble person. Are you? Well, if you were, you wouldn't talk about it. But if you are humble, that means you count others as being better than yourself. Look at all the people around you. Everybody around you. Look, do you count the people around you as better than you? Do you say to the people around you, you are an amazing person. I hold you in the highest esteem. There's so many wonderful things about you that I admire. Paul adds to that gentleness. Gentleness means that you surrender your own rights. You surrender whatever you have and whatever you do for the betterment of others. Now imagine if the world were a gentle place. For instance, in business. Let's say your refrigerator dies or your car has got serious problems and you bring it in for a repair and the man or woman behind the counter is a, a truly spiritually gentle person. What you know then is that person is going to charge you exactly what the job is worth but not one penny more. That's wonderful. But imagine if marriages were like that and families and the church community. That... In our relationships with one another, we were so gentle that we say, you know what, I would never do anything to get ahead of you. For instance, if we're having a discussion, I'm not going to put you down. I'm not going to have the last word. I want to hear your opinion. I want you to grow in our discussion together. Paul also talks about patience. Now, now patience literally in Greek means to have a long temper. You know what a short temper is? A short fuse? It means that the moment somebody ticks you off, you explode. Some people are like that. Volatile. Explode. And, they, and then they say, you know, that's just the kind of person I am. I explode and it's all over. But meanwhile, you explode at your wife or your child 
or another member of the congregation. That hurts. You do it often enough, it can damage people for a lifetime. That explosive anger that we show to the people around us, people that we're supposed to, to love, or even the slow burn, that, that long bitterness and anger towards one another. Paul says, have a long temper. In other words, control it. Don't get angry with people. Even if that's in your character, your personality, you pray about it and be filled with the Spirit. And you do not explode and simmer and get angry at other people. Learn not to be angry, but to say to yourself, okay, this person has hurt me. Let me talk to that person. Let's work this through in the spirit of love. Bear one another in love, says the Apostle Paul. Now, brothers and sisters, you are a congregation. And a congregation is a very complex relationship. It's a complex group of people. Some of you have been here for decades. We worship together every Sunday. We send our children to the same school. There's intermarriage. We go on vacation. We sit at the same church picnic. There's so much relationship between people. And you know what happens when people get together year after year. You can grow close together or you can get far apart. And you learn that pretty quickly when you come in a congregation and you visit somebody and they talk about other people in the congregation, you can see that they're bitter. They don't like certain members of the congregation and perhaps even gossip about them to others. Or you will see it in a congregation. There stands somebody and another person makes a beeline right by. Ever had that? Somebody walked just right on by you without a look, without a care, and made a point of ignoring you. That hurts. And it's damaging. It's not the work of the Spirit that rips a church apart. Because, you know, hurting people doesn't just mean you drive them out the door, that they withdraw from the church. Every person in the church has potential. We're all filled with the Spirit. There's room for growing. As Paul says, that we go from one degree of glory to the next. Well, people are going to grow when you love them and you draw them in. What's your attitude, brothers and sisters, to other members of the congregation? Do you love your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Are you patient and gentle, bearing one another in love? Or is there somebody you hate? Somebody you gossip about? Somebody that you'd walk on by? Does it happen that in our congregation... You come out of the worship service, there stands an elderly widow. There stands someone who has acted maybe a little bit strangely in the past. Somebody who has gotten into trouble. You walk right on by. Because you're headed over to the beautiful people. You want to be with the beautiful people. Not that old widow. Not that newcomer. Not that person on the fringe. You walk on by. What if Jesus did that to you? What if Jesus, who came into this world, looked at you, sinner that you are, and walked on by? 
you'd be lost forever. It's terribly destructive to ignore people, to write off people, to have a spirit of bitterness against members of the congregation. It just pushes them more and more to the edge and makes it impossible for them to enjoy salvation, to be able to go to the Lord's Supper and say how wonderful it is to be here in the midst of my loving brothers and sisters together to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, brothers and sisters, we can talk a lot about church unity. And we can have church picnics and coffee socials and get-togethers. You know what? It's all fluff. If the core is not there, if there's not the foundation of people who keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. We need to think about these things and, and to pray about these things. To have an attitude of, I will forgive those who have wronged me. I will love any member of the congregation, no matter what. And I will have an eye for the straggler, the lonely, those on the fringe, maybe those who have done rotten things but, but want to change. I will love also them and speak to them and lift them up in love and in peace. You might say, well, who is up for such a thing? How can I do all these things? Remember what we said in verse 1. Paul says, therefore, I exalt you. You who God loved before the foundation of the world. You who were bought with the blood of Jesus. You who are filled with the Spirit. Just be what you are. All of us, be what we are, the children of God, washed in the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. Seize that joy and show it in your life. And it begins in our, in our families and relationships and within the congregation. And that brings Paul to a breathtaking statement when he says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What, what Paul is trying to make clear here is he says, look, I tell you that you have everything you need to keep the unity of the Spirit. But what you have to understand is that the unity is there, it's from our God, and it's, it's a high goal within the church. Paul says there's one body, one spirit. That body is the church. The spirit is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we said earlier, takes each one of you and makes you a child of God. He fills you. He makes you into a living stone and builds you up into that one structure that is the temple of God that together we may live to the praise and the glory of God. So you take anyone in this congregation Two, two children sitting in the same catechism class. Two people on the phone together because they're on a phone tree. You know, maybe there's a, a snowstorm and a worship service has to be canceled. Or two people walk through those doors together into a worship service. One person sitting over there and one person sitting over there. You're all filled, as a, as a believer, you're all filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, together, as one. That's my goal, says the Holy Spirit. One body, one spirit. 
you got one Lord, Jesus Christ. One faith. One baptism. Baptized together into the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Speaks here of our Father who is our Creator and our Recreator. God the Father is over all because He created all things. He is through all because it's in His Son, Jesus Christ, that He has saved us. And He is in all in that through the Spirit He brings us back to His praise and His glory. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. Brothers and sisters, do you understand what we're saying here? Paul is saying, you take God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's their goal in this world? In this whole world that God has created and maintained, where there are kingdoms, there are countries, there are rocket ships going out to the outer space, what is God's mission? What is God's goal? One church. One church, says God. That's what I want. Not scattered people through the world. Not injured people who are cut off from society, from a communion of saints. God wants one church. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, all gathered together under one God, under one head, and together live to the praise and the glory of God with no one falling away. Now, if we can all understand that, and I don't mean an academic, theological understanding, but if you can understand it in your heart. And if at this moment, or later on this day, as you think about this passage that we've dealt with this morning, if you can feel, if you can experience, if you can come to that level of consciousness to know that as a church, we are united by one Spirit. And to say, I genuinely love the other members of the congregation. Then perhaps, in the coming days, in the coming weeks, you might just stop and talk to that widow. And say, could I come by and visit you this week? And that person who has got into all kinds of trouble, instead of shunning him or shunning her, I'm going to go to him and show that I too can forgive and love and help a person out. And those who might seem a little stranger, a little weirder, a little below our, our social standing in class, that's the person I'm going to go to. Not the beautiful people, but to those that get ignored. To love and to care and to draw them in, that that person says how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. There is God. There I am happy. There I am lifted up by the love of my brothers and sisters. I know what it is that the love of God is working in this church, and I embrace it. And I live in the joy of salvation. That's what God seeks. It's what our one God wants. A unified church keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Amen.